Part three of Chapter two of Animal Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Animal Ghosts by Elliot O'Donnell. Part three of Chapter two. Here followed an extract from a local paper sensational discovery in a wood near marytown whilst exploring in a wood near marytown the other evening a party of the name of b discovered three skeletons a human being and two dogs in the trunk of an oak from the remnant of clothes still adhering to the human remains the latter were proved to be those of an individual known as mr jeremiah dance whose strange disappearance from the crow's nest the house he rented in the neighborhood some two years ago was the occasion of much comment on closer examination extraordinary to relate the remains had been proved to be those of a woman and from certain abrasions on the skull there is little doubt she met with a violent end a second extract taken from the same paper runs thus suicide at marytown late last night percy baldwin the man who is under arrest on suspicion of having caused the death of the unknown woman whose skeleton was found on monday in the trunk of a tree committed suicide by hanging himself with his suspenders to the ceiling of his cell pinned on his coat was a slip of paper bearing these words she was my wife i loved her she took to drink i parted from her she became a dog worshipper i killed her and her dogs phantasms of living dogs i could quote innumerable cases of people who have either seen or heard the spirits of dead dogs however as space does not permit of this i proceed to the oft-raised question do animals as well as people project themselves my reply is yes according to my experience they do some friends of mine have a big tabby that has frequently been seen in two places at the same time for example it has been observed by several people to be sitting on a chair in the dining room and at the same moment it has been seen by two or more other persons extended at full length before the kitchen fire the latter figure proving to be its immaterial or what some designate its astral body which vanishes the instant an attempt is made to touch it the only explanation of this phenomenon seems to me to lie in projection the cat possessing the faculty of separating in this instance unconsciously its spiritual from its physical body the former traveling anywhere regardless of space time and material obstacles i have often had experiences similar to this with a friend's dog i have been seated in a room either reading or writing and on looking up had distinctly seen the dog lying on the carpet in front of me. A few minutes later, a scraping at the door or window, both of which have been shut all the while, and on my rising to see what was there, I have discovered the dog outside. Had I not been so positive that I had seen the dog on the ground in front of me, I might have thought it was a hallucination. But hallucinations are never so vivid, nor so lasting. Moreover, other people have had similar experiences with the same dog. And why not? Dogs, on the whole, are every whit as reasoning and reflective as the bulk of human beings. 
and how much nobler. Compare for a moment the dogs you know, no matter whether mastiffs, retrievers, dotsons, poodles, or even pickanese, with your acquaintances, with the people you see everywhere around you, false, greedy, spiteful, scandal-loving women, money-grubbing attorneys, lying, swindling tradesmen, vulgar parvenus, finicky curates, brutal roughs, spoilt, cruel children, hypocrites of both sexes. Compare them carefully, and the comparison is entirely in favor of the dog. And if the creating power, or powers, has favored these wholly selfish and degenerate human beings with spirits, and has conferred on certain of them the faculty of projecting those spirits, can one imagine for one moment that similar gifts have been denied to dogs, their superiors in every respect? Pshaw! out upon it. To think so would mean to think the unthinkable, to attribute to God the qualities of partiality, injustice, and whimsicality, which would render him little, if anything, better than a James the Second of England or a Louis the Fifteenth of France. Besides, from my own experience, and the experiences of those with whom I have been brought in contact, I can safely affirm that there are phantasms, and therefore spirits, of both living and dead dogs, in just the same proportion as there are phantasms, and therefore spirits, of both living and dead human beings. Psychic Properties of Dogs Some, not all dogs, like cats, possess the psychic property of scenting the advent of death, and they indicate their fear of it by the most dismal howling. In my opinion, there is very little doubt that dogs actually see some kind of phantasm that, knowing when death is about to take place, visits the house of the doomed and stands beside his or her couch. I have had this phantasm described to me by those who declare they have seen it as a very tall, hooded figure, clad in a dark, loose, flowing costume, its face never discernible. It would, of course, be foolish to say that a dog howling in a house is invariably the sign of death. There are many other and obvious causes which produce something of a similar effect, but I think one may be pretty well assured that, when the howling is accompanied by unmistakable signs of terror, then someone, either in the house at the time or connected with someone in the house, will shortly die. Dogs in Haunted Houses when I investigate a haunted house, I generally take a dog with me, because experience has taught me that a dog seldom fails to give notice, in some way or another, either by whining or growling or crouching shivering at one's feet, or springing on one's lap and trying to bury its head in one's coat, of the proximity of a ghost. I had a dog with me, when ghost hunting, not so very long ago, in a well-known haunted house in Gloucestershire. The dog, my only companion, and I sat on the staircase leading from the hall to the first floor. Just about two o'clock, the dog gave a loud growl. I put my hand out and found it was shivering from head to foot. Almost directly afterwards, I heard the loud clatter of fire irons from somewhere away in the basement. A door bangs, and then something, or someone, began to ascend the stairs. Up, up, up came the footsteps, until I could see, first of all, a bluish light, then the top of a head, then a face, white and luminous, staring up at me. A few more steps, 
and the whole thing was disclosed to view it was the figure of a girl about sixteen with a shock head of red hair on which was stuck all awry a dirty little old-fashioned servant's cap she was clad in a cotton dress soiled and bedraggled and had on her feet a pair of elastic-sided boots that looked as if they would fall to pieces each step she took but it was her face that riveted my attention most it was startlingly white and full of an expression of the most hopeless misery the eyes wide open and glassy were turned direct on mine i was too appalled either to stir or utter a sound the phantasm came right up to where i stood paused for a second and then slowly went on up 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 until a sudden bend in the staircase hid it from view for some seconds there was a continuation of the footsteps then there came a loud splash from somewhere outside and below and then silence sepulchral and omnipotent i did not wait to see if anything further would happen i fled and dick my dog friend who was apparently even more frightened than i fled with me we arrived home panic-stricken over and over again on similar occasions i have had a dog with me and the same thing has occurred the dog has made some noise indicative of great fear remaining in a state of stupor during the actual presence of the apparition psychic propensities of dogs compared with those of cats though dogs are perhaps rather more alarmed at the unknown than cats i do not think they have a keener sense of its proximity still for the very reason that they show greater more unmistakable indications of fear they make surer psychic barometers the psychic faculty of scent in dogs would seem to be more limited than that in cats for whereas cats can not only detect the advent and presence of pleasant and unpleasant phantoms by their smells few dogs can do more than detect the approach of death dogs make friends nearly if not quite as readily with cruel and brutal people as with kind ones simply because they cannot so easily as cats distinguish by their scent the unpleasant types of spirits cruel and brutal people attract in all probability they are not even aware of the presence of such spirits it would seem on the face of it that since dogs are on the whole of a gentler disposition than cats that is to say not quite so cruel and savage the phantasms of dogs would be less likely to be earthbound than those of cats but then one must take into consideration the other qualities of the two animals and when these are put in balance one may find little to choose morally between the cat and the dog anyhow after making allowance for the fact that many more cats die unnatural deaths than dogs there would seem to be small numerical difference in their hauntings cases of dog ghosts appearing to be just as common as cases of cat ghosts apropos of phantom dogs my friend dr g west writes to me thus of the older english universities many stories are told of bizarre happenings of duels raggings suicides and such like in olden times but of k venerable illustrious k of ireland few and far between are the accounts of similar occurrences this is one however and it deals with the phantom of a dog one evening towards the end of the eighteenth century 
john kelly a dean of the college extremely unpopular on account of his supposed harsh treatment of some of the undergraduates was about to commence his supper when he heard a low whine and looking down saw a large yellow dog cross the floor in front of him and disappear immediately under the full-length portrait that hung over the antique chimney-piece something prompting him he glanced at the picture the eyes that looked into his blinked it must be the result of an overtaxed brain he said to himself those rascally undergraduates have got on my nerves he shut his eyes and reopening them stared hard at the portrait it was not a delusion the eyes that gazed back at him were alive alive with the spirit of mockery they smiled laughed jeered and as they did so the knowledge of his surroundings was brought forcibly home to him the room in which he was seated was situated at the end of a long cheerless stone passage in the western wing of the college away from all the other rooms of the building it was absolutely isolated and had long borne the reputation of being haunted by a dog which was said to appear only before some catastrophe the dean had hitherto committed the story to the category of fables but now now as he sat all alone in that big silent room lit only with the reddish rays of a fast-setting august sun and stared into the gleaming eyes before him he was obliged to admit the extreme probability of spookdom never before had the college seemed so quiet not a sound not even the creaking of a board or the far-away laugh of a student common enough noises on most nights fell on his ears the hush was omnipotent depressing unnerving he could only associate it with the supernatural though he was too fascinated to remove his gaze from the thing before him he could feel the room fill with shadows and feel them steal through the half-open windows and uniting with those already in the corners glide noiselessly and surreptitiously towards him he felt too that he was under the surveillance of countless invisible visages all scanning him curiously and delighted beyond measure at the sight of his terror the moments passed in a breathless state of tension he stared at the eyes and the eyes stared back at him once he endeavored to rise but a dead weight seemed to fall on his shoulders and hold him back and twice when he tried to speak to make some sound no matter what to break the appalling silence his throat closed as if under the pressure of cruel relentless fingers but the ultima thule of his emotions had yet to come there was a slight stir behind the canvas a thud a hollow groan that echoed and re-echoed throughout the room like the muffled clap of distant thunder and the eyes suddenly underwent a metamorphosis they grew glazed and glassy like the eyes of a dead person a cold shudder ran through the dean his hair stood on end his blood turned to ice again he essayed to move to summon help again he failed the strain on his nerves proved more than he could bear a sudden sensation of nausea surged through him his eyes swam his brain reeled there was a loud buzzing in his ears he knew no more some moments later one of the college servants arrived at the door with a bundle of letters and on receiving no reply to his raps entered 
"'Good heavens, what's the matter?' he cried, gazing at the figure of the dean, lolling head downward on the table. "'Merciful prudence, the gentleman is dead. No, he ain't. Some of the young gents will be sorry enough for that. He's fainted.' The good fellow poured out some water in a tumbler, and was proceeding to sprinkle the dean's face with it. When a noise, attracting his attention, he peered round at the picture. It was bulging from the wall. It was falling. And, good God, what was that falling with it? That huge black object? A coffin? No, not a coffin, but a corpse. The servant ran to the door, shrieking, and in less than a minute, passage and room were filled to overflowing with a scared crowd of inquiring officials and undergraduates. "'What has happened? What's the matter with the dean? Has he had a fit, or what? And the picture? And Anderson? Anderson lying on the floor. Hurt? No, not hurt. Dead. Murdered.' In an instant, there was silence and the white-faced throng closed in on one another as if for protection. In front of them, beside the fallen picture, lay the body of the most gay and popular student in the college, Bob Anderson. Bob Anderson, with a stream of blood running from a deep incision in his back, made with some sharp instrument, that had been driven home with tremendous force. He had, without a doubt, been murdered. But by whom? Then one of the undergraduates, a bright, boyish, fair-haired giant named O'Farrell, immensely popular, both on account of his prowess in sport and an untold number of the most audacious escapades, spoke out. I saw Anderson about an hour ago, crossing the quadrangle. I asked him where he was going, and he replied, To old Kelly. I intend on paying him out for gating me last week. I inquired how, and he replied, I've a glorious plan. You know that portrait stuck over his mantel shelf? Well, in poking about the room the other day, when the old man was out, I had a great find. Directly behind the picture is the door of a secret room, so neatly covered by the designs on the wall that it is not discernible. It was only by the merest fluke I discovered it. I was taking down the picture with the idea of touching up the face, when my knuckles bumped against the panels of the wall touched a spring, and the door flew open, revealing an apartment about six by eight feet large. I at once explored it, and found it could be entered by the chimney. An idea then struck me. I would play a trick upon the dean by hiding in this secret chamber one evening while he was feeding, cutting out the eyes of the portrait, and peering through the cavities at him. And this, O'Farrell continued, pointing at the fallen picture, is evidently what he did after I left him. You can see the eyes of the portrait have been removed. That is so sure, one of the other undergraduates, Mick McGuire, six feet two in his socks and every inch, exclaimed, and what is more, I knew all about it. Anderson told me yesterday what he was going to do, and I wanted to join him, but he said I would never get up the chimney. I would stick there and be dad, I think he was right. At this remark, despite the grimness of the moment, several of those present laughed. Come, come, gentlemen, one of the officials cried. This is no time for levity. Mr. Anderson has been murdered, and the question is, by whom? Then, if that's the only thing that is troubling you, 
O'Farrell put in. I fancy the solution is right here at hand. And he looked significantly at the dean. An ominous silence followed, during which all eyes were fixed on John Kelly, some anxiously, some merely inquiringly, but not a few angrily. For Kelly, as I have said before, had made himself particularly obnoxious just then by his behavior to the rowdier students, and, as has ever been the case at K, these formed no small portion of the community. The dean hardly seemed to realize the situation. The dignity of office blind him to danger. "'What do you mean?' he spluttered. "'I know nothing of what happened to Mr. Anderson. "'Really?' "'Really, O'Farrell, your presumption is preposterous.' "'There was no one else in here but you and he, Mr. O'Kelly,' O'Farrell retorted coolly. "'It's only natural we should think you know something of what happened.' On the arrival of the police, who had been sent for somewhat reluctantly, for the prestige of the college at that date was very dear to all, the premises were thoroughly searched, and, no other culprit being found, First of all, Dean Kelly was apprehended, and then, to make a good job of it, his accuser, Dennis O'Farrell. All of the college was agog with excitement. No one could believe the dean was a murderer, and it was just as inconceivable to think O'Farrell had committed the deed. And yet, if neither of them had killed Anderson, who in God's name had killed him? The night succeeding the affair, whilst the dean and O'Farrell were still in jail awaiting the inquest, a party of undergraduates were discussing the situation in McGuire's rooms, when the door burst open, and into their midst, almost breathless with excitement, came a measly, bespectacled youth named Brady, Patrick Brady. "'I'm awfully sorry to disturb you, fellas,' he stammered, but there have been odd noises just outside my room all the evening, and I've just seen a queer kind of dog that vanished. God knows how. I, I, well, will you call me an ass, of course, but I'm afraid to stay in there alone, and that's the long and short of it. Figura, McGuire exclaimed. It can't be poor Bob's ghost already. What sort of noises were they? Noises like laughter, Brady said loud peals of horrid laughter someone is trying to frighten you one of the undergrads observed and faith he succeeded you are twice as white as any sheet it's ill-timed mirth anyhow someone else put in with anderson's dead body upstairs i'm for making an example of the black guard and i and i the others echoed a general movement followed and headed by Brady, the procession moved to the north wing of the college. At that time, be it remembered, a large proportion of K undergrads were in residence. Now it is otherwise. On reaching Brady's rooms, the crowds halted outside and listened. For some time, there was silence, and then a laugh, low, monotonous, unmirthful, metallic, coming as it were from some adjacent chamber and so unnatural, so abhorring, that it held everyone spellbound. It died away in the reverberations of the stone corridor, its echoes seeming to awake a chorus of other laughs, hardly less dreadful. Again there was silence, no one daring to express his thoughts. Then, as if by common consent, all turned precipitately into Brady's room and slammed the door, that is what I heard, Brady said, 
what does it mean is it the meaning of it you're wanting to know mcguire observed sure tis the devil for no one but him could make such a noise i've never heard the like of it before who has the rooms on either side of you these brady replied pointing to the right no one they were vacated at easter and are being repainted and decorated these on the left dobson who is i happen to know at the present moment in county mayo he won't be back till next week then we can search them a student called hartnell and intervened to be sure we can brady replied but i doubt you'll find anyone a search was made and brady proved to be correct not a vestige of anyone was discovered much mystified mcguire's party was preparing to depart when hartnell who had taken the keenest interest in the proceedings suddenly said who has the rooms over yours brady sound as you know plays curious tricks and it's just as likely as not that laugh came from above oh i don't think so brady answered the man overhead is belton a very decent sort he is going in for his final shortly and is sweating fearfully hard at the present we might certainly ask him if he heard the noise the students agreeing brady led the way upstairs and in response to their summons belton hastily opened the door he was a typical bookworm thin pale and rather emaciated with a pleasant expression in his eyes and mouth that all felt was assuring holloa he exclaimed it isn't often i'm favored with a surprise party of this sort come in and he pressed them so hard that they felt constrained to accept his hospitality and before long were all seated round the fire quaffing whiskey and puffing cigars as if they meant to make a night of it at two o'clock someone suggested that it was high time they thought of bed and belton rose with them before we turn in let's have another search he said it's strange you should hear all that noise except me unless of course it came from below but there's nothing under me brady remarked except the dining hall then let's search that belton went on we ought to make a thorough job of it now that we've begun besides i don't relish being in this lonely place with that laugh knocking around any more than you do he went with them and they completely overhauled the ground floor hall dining room studies passages vestibules everywhere that was not barred to them and they were no wiser at the end of their search than at the beginning there was not the slightest clue as to the author of the laugh on the morrow there was a fresh shock one of the college servants on entering mr mcguire's rooms to call him found that gentleman half dressed and lying on the floor terrified beyond measure the servant bent over him and discovered he was dead obviously stabbed with the same weapon that had put an end to bob anderson the factotum at once gave the alarm everyone in the college came trooping to the room and for the second time within three days a general hue and cry was raised all again to no purpose the murderer had left no traces as to his identity however one thing at least was established and that was the innocence of dean kelly and dennis o'farrell they were both liberated then hartnell who seems to have been a regular sherlock holmes got to work in grim earnest on the floor in mcguire's room he picked up a diminutive silver-topped pencil which had rolled under the fender and had so escaped observation 
he asked several of mcguire's most intimate friends if they remembered seeing the pencil case in mcguire's possession but they shook their heads he inquired in other quarters too but with no better result and finally resolved to ask brady who belonged to quite a different set from himself with that object in view he set off to brady's room shortly after supper as there was no response to his raps he at length opened brady's door in front of the hearth in a big easy chair sat a figure brady by all that's holy hartnell exclaimed by jupiter the beggar's asleep that's what comes of swatting too hard brady approaching the chair he called again brady and getting no reply patted the figure gently on the back be jabbers you sleep soundly old fella he said how about that and he shook him heartily by the shoulder the instant he let go the figure collapsed in order to get a closer view hartnell then struck a light with the tinder box the flickering of the candle flame fell on brady's face it was white ghastly white and there was no animation in it the jaw dropped with a cry of horror hartnell sprang back and as he did so a great yellow dog dashed across the hearth in front of him whilst from somewhere close at hand came a laugh long low satirical a cold terror gripped hartnell and for a moment or so he was on the verge of fainting however hearing voices in the quadrangle he pulled himself together approached the window on tiptoe and peering through the glass perceived to his utmost joy two of his friends directly beneath him i say you fellas he called in low tones come up here quickly brady's rooms i have seen the phantom dog there's been another tragedy and the murderer is close at hand come quietly and we may catch him he then retraced his steps to the center of the room and listened again there came the laugh subtle protracted hellish and it seemed to him as if it must originate in the room overhead a noise in the direction of the hearth made him look round some loose plaster had fallen and whilst he gazed still more fell the truth of the whole thing then dawned on him the murderer was in the chimney hartnell was a creature of impulse in the excitement of the moment he forgot danger and the dastardly nature of the crimes gave him more than his usual amount of courage he rushed at the chimney and regardless of soot and darkness began an impromptu ascent halfway up something struck him once twice thrice sharply and there was a soft malevolent chuckle at this juncture the two undergraduates arrived in brady's room no one was there nothing save a hunched-up figure on a chair hartnell they whispered hartnell no reply they called him again still no reply again and again they called until at length through sheer fatigue they desisted and seized with a sudden panic precipitately downstairs and out into the quadrangle once more the alarm was given and once again the whole college wild with excitement hastened to the scene of the outrage this time there was a double mystery brady had been murdered hartnell had disappeared the police were summoned and the whole building ransacked but no one thought of the chimney till the search was nearly over and half the throng overcome with fatigue had retired o'farrell was the discoverer 
Happening to glance at the hearth, he saw something drop. "'For heaven's sake, you fellas!' he shouted. "'Look! Blood! You may take it from me. There's a corpse in the chimney!' A dozen candles invaded the hearth, and a Herculean policeman undertook the ascent. In breathless silence, the crowd below waited, and, after a few seconds of intense suspense, two helpless legs appeared on the hob. Bit by bit, the rest of the body followed, until at length the whole figure of Hartnell, black, bleeding, blood-stained, was disclosed to view. At first it was thought that he was dead, but the surgeon who had hurried to the scene, pronouncing him still alive, there arose a tremendous cheer. The murderer had at all events been foiled this time. "'Begora!' cried O'Farrell. "'Hartnell was after the murderer when he was struck, and sure I'll be after him the same way myself.' And before anyone could prevent him, O'Farrell was up the chimney, up, 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 until he found himself going down, 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 and then, bedad, he stepped right out onto the floor of Belton's room. Hulloa! the latter exclaimed, looking not a bit disconcerted. There's a curious mode of making your entrance into my domain. Why didn't you come to my door? Because, O'Farrell replied, pointing to a patch of soot near the washstand, I followed you. Own up, Dickie Belton. You're the culprit. You did for them all and Belton laughed. Yes, it was true. Overwork had turned Belton's brain, and he was subsequently sent to a criminal lunatic asylum for the rest of his life. But there were moments when he was comparatively sane, and in these interims he confessed everything. Anderson had told him that he was going to hoax the dean, and filled with indignation at the idea of such a trick being played on a college official, for he, Belton, was a great favorite with the Beaks. He had accompanied Anderson on the plea of helping him, intending, in reality, to frustrate him. It was not till he was in the chimney, crouching behind Anderson, that the thought of killing his fellow students had entered his mind. The heat of his hiding place, acting on an already overworked brain, hastened on the madness, and his fingers, closing on a clasp knife in one of his pockets, inspired him with a desire to kill. The work, once begun, he had argued with himself, would have to be continued, and he had then and there decided that all unruly graduates should be exterminated. With what measure of success this determination was carried out need not be recapitulated here, but with the regard to the phantom dog, a few words may be added. Since it appeared immediately before the committal of each of the three murders I have just recorded, it was seen by Mr. Kelly before the death of Bob Anderson, by Brady before the murder of McGuire, and by Hartnell before Brady was murdered. I think there can neither be doubts as to its existence, nor as to the purport of its visits. Moreover, its latest appearance in the university, reported to me quite recently, preceded a serious outbreak of fire. End of Part 3, Chapter 2 of Animal Ghosts